You're listening to Culturally Speaking. This is Janice. And this is Neha. And we're here to talk about all things cultural. Okay, so this week we have got a guest joining us on the podcast. Um, Welcome to Robbie. He's our friend um, and he's here today to tell us something about Thai festivals. Uh, Robbie lived in Thailand for a while and I'm sure we'll get into that a little bit more but I will hand over to Robbie so thank you for joining us. Hey guys I'm so happy to be here. I heard about this podcast when you guys were planning it months ago and I was so excited to be involved and when you first invited me along I was so ecstatic to come and then we haven't had actually a chance to record our episode until now so yeah I'm really happy to be here. So the festivals which I'm going to be telling you about today are two really important Thai festivals, which I used to celebrate every year when I lived back in Bangkok. And they are Songkran, which is the Thai New Year that's usually in April. Um, and then it's Loi Kratong, which is the, basically it's a festival to thank the goddess of water, the Hindu goddess Ganga. Um, and it's usually in November. And yeah, it's on the, it's on the evening of the full moon of the 12th moon in the Thai lunar calendar. So first off, I'm going to start with Songkran, which Neha, you've actually celebrated before, right? Yeah, so I was in Thailand um, last year for Songkran when it was celebrated. So that was pretty cool. I'm so jealous. Yeah, so Songkran is this really fun festival where basically everybody gets out into the streets and gets water guns and big buckets of water and has a huge party in the streets and throws water on everyone. So it's like a giant water fight. Um, And actually, the story behind Songkran is quite fun. So basically, it was, there was basically a wealthy man who had an alcoholic neighbor. And the (laughs) wealthy man had no kids. Um, But his alcoholic neighbor had loads of children. And the alcoholic neighbor was apparently bullying him a lot for not having kids. Um, So... Basically, the wealthy man went to the sun and moon gods and asked and asked for a son. Um, But those attempts failed. So then what he did is he went to the tree god who lived in a banyan tree. And he asked the tree god to grant his wish and give him a child. And the tree god gave him a kid um, who was a highly intelligent son. Um, And then basically the son went to... The, he, he grew up, he was really, really smart. He knew how to like talk to animals. Um, and he went and talked to the eagles and was trying to learn about how to sort of reach enlightenment and how to help people avoid sin. Um, and then basically one of the animals told him that there would be this massive, massive calamity that was coming um, that would create an inferno that would engulf the world and that he'd be sort of thrown into the air. The, air, the rain would stop. Um, and all the seawater would dry up. And the only way he could prevent his, these calamities was to place his head on an elevated tray. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, I was expecting such a like, yeah. dramatic end to the story, and that feels so anticlimactic. Because <laughs> yeah. it was well, like escalating to world apocalypse and then sleep with a tray under your head. No, 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 no. I think like, his head had to be like removed and then placed on an elevated tray. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like like serious stuff. Um, So then one of his his eldest child, his daughter, um, took his head and stored it in a cave. And then every year when the sun enters Aries, 
one of his children and other angels form a procession um, and basically does this ritual with the head. Um, and from dawn to midday, the child will sort of, like the child, the daughter will carry the head through. Um, but yeah, I'm not really sure how that lines up with a massive water fight, but it's an interesting backstory, isn't it? It's interesting that you talked about from dawn um, to like midday, the daughter will be carrying his head because when I was in Thailand, where I was in the South at this point, there was a young lady that they dressed up like a bride and carried her through the streets. And I didn't know if that was related in any way or not. But apparently it's yeah, quite I mean, traditional to ca- to like dress up a young woman as a bride. Yeah, so apparently the whole the whole festival comes from an Indian Hindu festival traditionally uh, called Makar Sanskriti. Yeah, that's right. It is very similar in the origin. I know that. But how it's celebrated is hugely different because... Um, the festival that you're referring to, the Hindu festival, is around, um, it's centred around kites and the cutting down of <laughs> each other's kites um, in a big game. And that's a completely different episode. I'm sure we could talk about it um, in well, detail. Actually, you talk about cutting kites. My dad told me, um, so I grew up in Hong Kong and so did my dad. And actually, one of the things they did as quite naughty kids, I think, um, would be to stick like kind of glass dust so you would you know crush up glass and then you would stick them on the what do you call on, on the, the kite the, the kite string yeah string. and then just go cut people's kites which yeah. you know nowadays I'm kind of like health and safety people's heads can get cut off so I'm not really sure why that was that was okay to do but um sorry I got I was really kind of stunned um by this whole head on a tray thing still i don't understand but neha maybe like the cutting of the kites right like the kite piece is the head of yeah and maybe that's like part of it oh um, god yeah no it's really really interesting um yeah i also heard that the hindu festival is apparently like a harvest festival that's what it's fundamentally celebrating like the january harvest yes Which, how does that um, line up yeah, that, that's true. So uh, Makasantri is generally separated uh, around January time. Um, and again, the kids do roll, or did used to at least, I'm not quite sure how it plays with health and safety today, but they do um, get glass on the kite strings and tr- you know, they're standing on rooftops trying to cut each other's kites down. And the last kite standing in the neighbourhood obviously has bragging rights. It's very much um, kite the kite runner, if you've read the book or saw the mm-hmm. film that you know that kind of infamous scene um but yes the the origins of celebrating the harvest in january um and like most good indian festivals there is always a good feast there's food there's very particular foods that are eaten at it well songkran is honestly one of the most fun festivals i've ever celebrated so like every year when i was younger um when songkran would actually happen everybody would go to the temples and you'd basically go and offer food to a buddhist monk um, and then some people would sort of pour water on Buddha statues as well on Songkran Day, and it sort of represents the purification and washing away of sins and bad luck and stuff. Um, but yeah, and 
basically the water of the festival is really known for the fact that like all the major streets are closed and the streets are used as this like arena for a water fight um so everybody just splashes water on on one another there's also traditional like, we... parades I was going to say, can we talk about just how ridiculous these water fights are? Because we're not talking, you know, a couple of buckets of water or a couple of kids with some water guns. It is a full on free for all. And no (laughs) one is like, you can't escape it, right? It doesn't matter whether you're old, young or otherwise. (laughs) No, and also like, like literally people will be going by in like a tuk-tuk, right? Like you'll be driving in a tuk-tuk through and people will splash water on you. It's just like a frenzy. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I guess that summarizes Songkrat. I've probably massacred it a little bit um, and not done, you know, the proper justice to the festival. But I think that epitomizes it. And I'd highly recommend that anybody who's interested in sort of having a fun trip to Thailand should definitely try and line it up with April and celebrate Songkran. Um So moving on to my second festival now. So Loi Kratong. Have either of you heard of Loi Kratong before? No, I don't think so. I might know it in a Chinese name. Mm, I think Yi Peng. Have you heard of Yi Peng? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, okay. So tell us me all. about it. Tell us it's all. It's interesting because, like, when you guys first asked me, because, like, when you first were telling me about the the podcast and Neha, you were like, "Oh, we you should record a a podcast with us around like Thai festivals, like particularly Songkran." I was like, "That's really interesting that she." Songkran, because to me, like the much more, you know, notable Thai festival that was much more important and central um, was Loi Kratong, which is in November. Um, and it basically, so Loi Kratong means to, like, literally, it translates as to float a basket. And basically, okay. it's it's the festival of the rivers, kind of, and like the river gods. Um, and in Bangkok, you have a massive river that flows through called the Chao Praya. Um, and on Loi Kratong, what, what everybody does is they thank the goddess of the river um, and they sort of wash away any negative karma and honor Buddha in that process, which is interesting because, again, Thai, Thai, the Thai performance of, of Buddhism is quite intertwined with a lot of Hindu traditions. Um, Southeast Asia really reflects that mixture of, of you know, Buddhism and Hinduism in a really interesting way. Um, but yeah, so on Loi Kratong, what you do is you actually create what they call a Kratong, which is a little float. So typically you get like a big disc of a banana, banana tree trunk. That's kind of like it floats. It's basically really buoyant. Um, and then you wrap the banana tree trunk with banana leaves to create this base. Right. And then usually you like fold the banana leaves to make them look like big petals to hold, to create almost like a bowl. That's, that goes out of the base. Um, and then inside the center of that bowl, you layer on different sorts of exotic flowers like, you know, orchids and beautiful, gorgeous sort of uh, marigolds and that sort of thing so that they create this little crown essentially within the center of it. And then you put a candle and then you put some incense sticks, which you push through into the banana leaf, the banana tree trunk base. Um, and then you take this kratong and you light the candles, you light the incense, and then on that evening, on the evening of Loi Kratong, which is when the full moon is out, um, you go and float the Kratong off on the river. And that's wow. how you do so, the offering. 
does each like family make one or is it like per individual everybody you makes one. all go wow an individual thing but it's so. it's huge so it's like everybody does this there's like a big build up to it and especially like the process of making your kratong is like mm. quite like a, a big thing in the lead up um and it's become it's become like a massive like almost it's been slightly commercialized so a lot of huge mm. organizations like businesses but also like government agencies and etc they all make giant kratongs like really huge ones um which they then have like beauty contests around um so there's like there's actually like the beauty contests or like the nokomat uh, queen contests which were named after the first queen who actually created a kratong back in the 13th century that's the story um the historiography doesn't entirely line up but i'll get that into that later uh, but basically, yeah, everybody makes these huge, like all the big organizations make a big kratong. And then there's like a massive contest as to who's made the most beautiful one. And you sort of mimic that on a smaller scale. So like, you know, in school, everybody would be making their kratongs in the lead up. And then, you know, there would be a bit of a competition as to who made the most beautiful one. And people would sort of like, like the teachers would pick a winner kind of. Um, and yeah, so everybody releases these onto the chow praia itself on that night. And it's quite beautiful because they all have this candle on them right so and there's mm-hmm. just the entire population of the city goes and does it so it's just like the entire river is covered in these glowing floating lanterns um yeah um which is quite cool. what happens to them afterwards so i think that's a really good question and just quickly you know i mentioned yi peng yeah so yi peng is the northern version of like so it's mm-hmm. like what they celebrate in northern thailand on the same evening so like near the border with china uh at sort of laos and myanmar so up up and around and beyond chiang mai and yi peng is basically where they light actual lanterns you know like mm-hmm. have you ever seen those lanterns that float off that float yeah yeah, yeah yeah so that's yi peng that's how they celebrate it so they all like make uh-huh, air lanterns okay. which they light and then those they float off into the air um, and they do that on the same evening. So in like the south and, and around Bangkok, everybody makes these water lanterns. And in the north, they do the air lanterns. And what you said about, you know, what happens to these lanterns afterwards, pollution has been a huge issue with this festival, both for like the air lanterns and for like the sub, like the water lanterns. Um, because with the air ones, they actually cause like a huge, huge challenge for uh, like planes that are flying over. Mm. It can be quite dangerous. Oh, God. Yeah, Gosh, yeah. I was just about to say, <laughs> it's really beautiful, but yeah, it could be quite. Imagine if you were a pilot flying along and you saw like this ocean of lanterns emerging up towards <laughs> you, you'd be terrified. Um, yeah, no. So, so that causes a lot of issues to planes, and obviously they they drop in random areas and they come with like a bit of a, a frame which needs to hold itself up as the lantern rises, but then that frame gets just deposed deposed of around you know, natural wildlife areas that it falls in. Um, And then with the water lanterns, they are actually, so historically you're meant to use banana tree trunk, right? Which we, most of the time we did use banana tree trunk, but a lot of the cheaper cretons are made using styrofoam as that base. Yeah, which as you can imagine, it would, it just floats down and accumulates and it doesn't degrade, um, which is Mm. a huge, huge environmental issue. And it's, Created, it creates a, a lot of pollution in the water system. Um, so they've actually started banning it. They've started banning the styrofoam cretongs in Thailand, but it's been sort of like a phased approach. So 
a lot of the time you would still see like a lot of the kratongs are styrofoam. Because people can't have nice things. Yeah, no. So I think that's my um, <laughs> my little run through. I want to know, um, festival wise, which one is you mentioned that Songwan isn't actually the biggest one, but it's the well, it's the Thai New Year, and it's Thai people get holidays around that time, and businesses will shut down, government will shut down. You very much see, you know, quite a drastic drop in activity on the streets. Is mm. it the same um, for the other festival? Loikotong, no, not as much. But I guess I guess Songkran, because it is the new year, it gets sort of overshadowed by the fact that a lot of people go home to visit their loved ones as well at the same time. Um, so and, and like paying reverence to ancestors is a big part of Songkran, which is much more of like a in your house, like close with your family kind of thing, as opposed to Loi Kratong, which is a bit more around like everybody coming together around the river. Um, so it just yeah, I guess I guess Songkran is more important, but it's a bit more introspective as well. But the big mm. one that really features largely as like more of a communally focused one is like Kratong. At least from my experience. I find it interesting how actually across a lot of cultures, water is you know, water symbolizes so many good things. It brings life, doesn't it? I think in most cultures water is symbolic with giving life and, and breathing life into whether it's crops, flowers, um, sustaining life as well for people, right? And I suppose with Songran around springtime as well, is it that renewal and that sense of starting again almost as well with the new year? Yeah, definitely, definitely. And yeah, as you said, like water, you know, it would be so important with like the rains when the rains would come when the water would start to fall from the sky that would be such an amazing sign for you know the next coming oh, harvest and then monsoon rain in thailand is no joke <laughs> that's true i've Very had true. times where i've just been stuck indoors like i mean i don't mind it's just rain but you literally can't see anything mm. there's no point in leaving the house and even in hong kong every year around you know traditional summer months the rain is just ridiculous. It's not really something we would see here in the UK. Occasionally, there have been heavy rains, but it's nothing compared to a monsoon rain. Mm, yeah, in in Japan as well, you have like this really distinct monsoon season called the Tsuyu, um, which comes in June, and it is just incredible how how distinct it is again with the rest of the the climate mm. like all of a sudden like it will be raining non-stop like pouring buckets for about a month and it's quite like bookended it doesn't usually last longer it's it's pretty contained to that period of the tsuyu but yeah it's just it comes every time at that same period and it's so consistent whereas in thailand i think you get random monsoon bits throughout the year it's a bit more sort of mm. hit and miss um, it is further south as well, right? Yeah. So, yeah. a bit more rainy. But I think I always quite like it when cultures really celebrate the seasons. I don't think we do it enough here. So, you know, we, we know about the time changing and we kind of know when spring is and summer is. But definitely, traditionally, in, in Chinese culture, we always celebrate the winter solstice. Like, there is always a big feast around it. 
Not so much the summer one or the spring one. And I think no one remembers autumn. Like, no one celebrates autumn, actually. Isn't there, um, like, uh, the festivities of the ghosts? Isn't that usually in autumn? Like, Oban? But it's not to celebrate the season, though. Um, that's it's true. It's kind of... It does coincide when, you know, that's usually when autumn is. Mm. But it's not about nature. About and the, yeah. maybe over here the seasons I don't know the last couple of years they seem to be quite unpredictable I think we've had the hail in March randomly and then it doesn't get very cold until quite late in the year so maybe that's why we can't celebrate seasons here yeah I think seasons here are also less distinct than they are in other parts of the world like like Japan mm-hmm. is quite an interesting one because they celebrate the seasons really well I think like like for instance so and they do it in quite a fun way where there's always a different flower that comes into bloom Mm -hmm. um and i mean everybody's heard of the the hanami and the the cherry blossoms Mm -hmm. um but what they don't realize is that there's a whole other set of flower watching um that the japanese do at different times of the year so for instance in in tsuyu it's when the hydrangea all come into Mm -hmm. bloom so there's a lot of different regions of Japan which grow huge amounts of hydrangeas all in one spot so that as soon as the tsuyu comes in, they all bloom collectively and you can go walk through and just be surrounded entirely by this same flower that's like blossoming. I feel it, like the Japanese people really, really value aesthetics. Yeah. Like they're very, very particular about, you know, flowers and you know, even look at how they make their food. You know, I don't know the specific Japanese name for the type of cuisine, but, you know, they have their version of fine dining where mm. they have, you know, Kaiseki. super, super, yeah, they have super beautiful plates. And, yeah, I think they're, they're onto something. I think they're very good at making things look very beautiful. They're very detail-oriented. Agreed. And as we have arrived where we always seem to end up at food. We're going to ask Robbie, favourite Thai dishes, either ones that are used to celebrate a particular festival or just in general. Can you tell us some good food memories? So my favourite dish would probably be, now this is a hard one because there are so many great ones with the Thai cuisine, but I've tried, so I've been showing my flatmates here in Devon like a couple of my favourite dishes that I know how to cook. Um, and trying to get them to sort of vote for their favorite and so the first one I put forward was a Thai it's almost like a Thai version of laksa called khao soy Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I love khao soy so good so good and then I like my personal favorite that I've loved like since I was a child has always been tom kagai which is coconut Mm -hmm. soup Um, and then the latest one that I showed them was this like Thai pork with holy basil I don't know if you guys have tried it so good. So out of those three, the one that got the most votes from my flatmates was actually the cow soy. Mm, so, so good. I'm dreaming of cow soy right now. <laughs> but what's what's yours, say... Neha? I would have gone cow soy, to be quite honest with you. Like, I cannot get enough of it. Mm-hmm. So I was, I'm with you, Neha, um, but I actually picked... I would pick Tom Kagai just because like I've been loyal to Tom Kagai since since I was a kid and it's... Tom Kagai for me is like comfort. Mm. Mm-hmm. That's what that is for me. 
it's nice. It's like it's a welcome friend. <laughs> mm, mm. And what's Kalsoy then? That's like the thing you look forward to mm. and you you know it's gonna be good. You know, the anticipation of it. <laughs> we have issues when we think about food like this, <laughs> but it has to be asked. Janice, what's yours? Okay. This is a very hard question, but a good pad thai is very satisfying. And I think it's mainly because I'm not a very big noodle person, but something about pad thai is just very balanced. Like you've got your protein, you've got your noodles, but it's the crunchy peanuts that really add to it. And mm. a good, so I go rogue with the curries. My favorite combination is actually green curry with duck. Um, I love duck. Like it's just, but it has to be made with, you know, the Chinese style roast duck. Mm -hmm. Not just any duck, right? It has to be Chinese style roast duck in green curry and it has to have lychees in it. So I'm aware this might be completely derailing from the cuisine, but I like having like lye cheese in curry no that's so good i've definitely got to try that well as fascinating as it has been hearing us talk about all our favorite dishes um i think it's been really interesting to hear about some thai festivals and thank you very much for joining us robbie oh thank you guys for having me and i can't wait to catch up with you both when the lockdown is over you've been listening to culturally speaking with music by kevin mcleod Please rate and subscribe on whatever podcast platform you're on. Get in touch with us on Instagram at Culturally Speaking Podcast or via email. You'll find all the details in our show notes. Tune in next week for more culture. Until then, stay cultured.